It is finished. Not I will be finished or I am finished. It is finished. In John's gospel, those were Jesus' last words on the cross. Listen to how he describes those final moments. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of God. Three simple words, right? But they can mean different things depending on the context. Imagine you wake up after it's been snowing all night and the ground is covered with a, with a foot of snow. You go out, you start shoveling the driveway, digging through the snow one chunk at a time. Just when you're almost done, what happens every time? The snow plow drives by, piling up a mountain of snow and ice at the end of the driveway. You look at that snow and you say, it's finished. I am so done with this. But then you pick up your shovel, you start chopping away at it until you finally turn around and there's nothing but blacktop between you and the garage. Then you can say, it is finished. You completed the job. You did what you needed to do. Most of you know I'm a big college basketball fan. So this is my favorite time of the year, right? March Madness, the NCAA tournament. So this year I filled out a bracket just for fun. I filled out a bracket, studied all the teams and the matchups, and I predicted who I thought would win each game. All the way through the final four and the championship game. I printed it out. I looked at it and I said, this is perfect. The perfect bracket. And then the game started. That first weekend, Oral Roberts, Oral Roberts beats Ohio State in the first game. And, and I look at my bracket after that and I said, it's finished. <laughs> Three simple words that can mean so much. So tonight I want to look at Jesus' final words to us. And here's where I'm going with this. He said them as a cry of victory. It is finished. But all too often, we live as if there's more to do, that he's not done yet, and we're living like it's finished. For the past six weeks, we've been talking about the cross-shaped life, and we've been saying that the cross isn't just the way that Jesus died, it's also the way that he lived pouring out his life, letting, it go, letting go of his rights, sacrificing himself for the good of others. So to appreciate how Jesus died, we need to remember how he lived. And to do that, let's go back all the way to the beginning. His birth was a miracle. His mother Mary was a virgin. Angels announced his birth, which you'd expect, of course, since he's the son of God and the son of God was now entering the world. What didn't make sense, though, was that he was being born in Bethlehem, in a stable, lying in a manger, surrounded by animals, and his first visitors are shepherd from the nearby fields. 
That's not how we expect God to enter the world. It doesn't seem like how the Messiah, a king, would start his life on earth among us. We don't know much about his childhood. We're told he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, but that's about all that we know. When Jesus turns 30, John the Baptist begins preaching in the wilderness, telling anyone who will listen that there's someone in Israel who is so much greater than John that he is not even worthy enough to untie his sandals. When Jesus shows up to be baptized with everyone else, John says that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right after that, Jesus is taken by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He doesn't give in, of course, and when he returns, Jesus begins his work, going from town to town, preaching, healing, performing miracles. His teaching is unlike anything we've heard before, and soon he's attracting large crowds everywhere he goes. But while the people love him, the religious leaders want nothing to do with him. Jesus is not shy about confronting their hypocrisy and prejudice. And while they're jealous of his popularity, they're also very angry and look for ways to stop him. Jesus keeps doing what he came to do, though, teaching with confidence and authority that no one's experienced before. His miracles of healing and casting out demons, controlling the wind and the waves, even raising people from the dead— have people thinking, this could be the Messiah. Maybe this man is really the Son of God come to earth. As time goes on, though, opinions start to change. Now the religious leaders are saying his power comes from Satan, and even the crowds are struggling to understand some of his teaching and parables. They, they, it doesn't quite make sense to them. He miraculously feeds thousands, and then he says that he is the bread of life sent from heaven. They don't understand this at all, though, but they want to force Jesus to be king. But he knows it's just because he feeds them and heals them. He tells them that anyone who wants to follow him must first deny themselves and take up their cross daily. A cross? That's for executing criminals. Why would we want to take up a cross? It's becoming clear to them that following Jesus isn't all free food and miracles. And the people turn away, and even many of his closest followers desert him. In the last year of his life, Jesus keeps teaching. He always has time for repentant sinners and the poor and the needy, but he has no patience for the religious leaders or the proud or anyone with a hardened heart. He spends more time with his 12 disciples teaching and training them, Peter soon recognizes that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But then Jesus starts talking about his death and his resurrection, and the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. The Messiah isn't supposed to die. Jesus turns toward Jerusalem. He raises Lazarus from the dead, which is amazing, but it just makes his enemies even more angry. They make plans to kill him and start looking for the right opportunity. And soon Judas will help them. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem like a king with people shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But then less than a week later, those same people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. 
Jesus knows that his time is running out. He spends the last days with those he loves the most, praying for them, showing them what true leadership looks like. When he's taken captive by his enemies, he doesn't fight back. He doesn't argue. He doesn't defend himself. He willingly goes to the cross to fulfill the purpose for which he came. He's stripped, beaten, whipped, then his arms are tied to the cross and spikes are driven through his wrists and his ankles. This isn't just an execution, it's torture. The Gospels tell us that around noon, the sun stopped shining. Complete darkness covered the land until three o'clock. It's like creation itself knows that something terrible is happening. Later, after asking for something to drink, Jesus takes one last breath and says, it is finished. And with that, he bows his head and gives up his spirit. I'm following one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans. You know, I'm a little reluctant to mention that in public because I've started these plans in the past and haven't always finished them. Anybody else relate to that? This year, I'm doing pretty good so far. It's April, and I'm staying, staying with it. It's, it's those weeks when you're reading through Leviticus and Numbers that are challenging, right? For me, reading about the laws and the sacrifices can be a little overwhelming. I try to imagine living during that time, following God. I know I love God. I want to stay on good terms with Him, but I also know what I'm like. So I picture myself walking up to the temple with a lamb or a goat, placing my hand on its head as it's slaughtered, seeing the blood uh, splattered on the altar, and knowing that this is all because of something that I did or something I should have done and didn't do. Because I messed up, this lamb had to die. I don't know if I could do that. And it wouldn't just be once. I'd be back there next week with another lamb. And the week after that, and the week after that, right? And after a while, the priests would just be shaking their head when they see me coming. But as hard as this is to read about, it shows me how serious sin is. The sacrifices were necessary because sin is a big issue. Anytime I put my desires ahead of God's desires, that's a sin. Anytime I put my desires ahead of God's desires, that's a sin. Remember the first commandment? God said, you shall have no other gods before me. That's pretty clear. But anytime I do what I want instead of what God wants, I'm placing myself, I'm putting myself in his place and breaking that first commandment. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? God said, don't eat that fruit. But they saw it and thought it would taste good and they thought, well, God can't tell us what to do. And they ate it. That was sin, and we make similar choices every day. God says to do this, and I really want to do that, and I think, well, I know what's best for me. And it's that sin that separates us from God and throws up a wall in our relationship with Him. No matter how hard we try, or, matter how, or no matter how good we are, we can't get around it, or over it, or through it. 
Sin will always block our relationship with God. And that takes us back to Jesus on the cross. God loved us so much. He missed having a relationship with you so much that he wanted one more sacrifice to pay for our sins. One final sacrifice to take the place of all those lambs and goats and bulls. And Jesus said, I'll do it. I'll go. And on that Friday night, he went to the cross, stared into that cesspool of our sins, and took every punishment that we were meant to have. And when it was done, he took a breath and said, it is finished. Those three words are actually just one word in the original Greek, tetelestai, tetelestai. And it's packed with meaning. Jesus wasn't just saying it's over or his suffering was finished. He was saying the job is done. It's perfect, complete. I've accomplished what I set out to do. It is finished. The word was also used in finance and bookkeeping. They've actually found accounting records from ancient times where invoices had tetelestai written across them. This order is paid in full. It's complete. It's finished. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He accomplished all that God had asked him to do. He finished the job set before him. He sacrificed himself for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved and paying the debt in full to Telestai. It is finished. But here's the problem. We don't live like it's finished. Even though the Bible tells us that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, we still carry them around with us, struggling under the weight of guilt or shame, even though God has already forgotten about it. Why do we do that? We don't believe Jesus when he says it's finished. We think there's still something that we need to do. Barbie and I bought our house about 20 years ago. It was definitely a fixer-upper. I don't think there's one room in that house that we haven't done work in. But I can walk through the house today and I see things that still need to be done. Anyone have a house like that? <laughs> I should paint this, I should replace that. It's still not done. Mm -hmm. My home office is in the finished basement. Now, I love my office, but a year ago, when we all started working from home, I looked around and said, well, I should put up some shelves and, and maybe paint. Now I just make sure that anything you can see in Zoom looks good, and beyond that... <laughs> In the busyness of our lives today, there's always something more to do. As soon as we check something off the list, three more things pop up. We can't even catch up, never mind get finished. But it's much, much deeper than that. There are some sins that we just can't seem to forget. We just keep relive, reliving them over and over, and we feel so guilty. We try to put those thoughts behind us, but it's like they're attached by a bungee cord. We get away from it for a while, and then it snaps right back. So we try to justify what we did, right? Well, I was younger then. I didn't know any better. I was lonely. 
Everyone else was doing it. To get ahead at work, I really need to be like that. You, you just don't understand what it's like. But after a while, we can't take it anymore. And we'll try anything to ease the pain. We drink more or eat more or play more, but that doesn't help. Maybe it feels good for a while. It distracts us from the pain, but it doesn't change anything. When we look to the world around us for advice, that doesn't seem to help. Whether you listen to Oprah or Brene Brown or whoever, it's all basically the same thing, right? Be yourself. Be vulnerable. Try harder. And you know, we do that. And it actually seems to work for a while, but it's never finished. We see someone or we hear something or we drive by someone's house and all those memories and feelings and all the guilt come flooding back again at us. And even when we think we can deal with the guilt, the shame is overwhelming. If guilt is thinking I did something bad, shame is believing I am something bad. And we're reminded of our sin and we hear the voices of people close to us, maybe even a family member or a friend, people we should be able to trust. And they're telling us, you're no good. Who do you think you are? And we've heard it so often. And the voices are so loud that we don't hear Jesus. The only one whose opinion should really matter. We don't hear Jesus telling us it is finished. It's finished. About 20 years after Jesus went to the cross, a man named Saul comes on the scene. When we first meet him, he's so anti-Jesus, he's actually hunting down Christians. He wants to destroy the church, and he almost did it too until Jesus appeared, and he changed his life completely, including his name. Paul knows something about sin and guilt he becomes a leader in the church. He meets with the disciples. He talks to those who knew Jesus closely. He puts all the pieces together. And then he writes a letter to the early church explaining what Jesus did for us on that first Good Friday. Look at this verse from Colossians with me. He forgave us all our sins. Okay, but how did he do that? having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's Tetelestai again, right? We owed a debt to God and we couldn't pay it, so Jesus paid it in full for us. And why did he do that? Because it stood against us and condemned us. We've all felt that. That's what we were just talking about. The things we've done that we're not proud of, they get right in our face and they haunt us and mock us. And every other religion tells us we have to do something about it. We have to try harder. We have to be good. But Jesus says, no, I did it for you. It is finished. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. John the Baptist was right. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're gone. Paid in full. There's nothing more you need to do. In a minute, the worship team's going to come back up here. And as they do, I want to leave you with something. 
you may be thinking, okay, I, I get all this, but I'm still dealing with the guilt. So when those negative thoughts start creeping in, reminding you of your sin and saying, you're no good, you'll never change. Let those memories remind you of something different. Instead of thinking about what you did, think about what Jesus did. He went to the cross and paid your debt in full. He's saying, you mean so much to me. I gave my life for yours. It is finished. Some of you may actually have to say this out loud. God, thank you. Yes, I did those things and I'm very sorry. But you have taken it away and nailed it to the cross. Now every time I remember those things, instead I will hear Jesus saying, it is finished. And I promise, Jesus promises you, there is nothing else you need to do. It's already finished. In a minute, Lauren's going to sing something for us. And I want you to listen for these words when she does. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. And after they're done, take a moment to reflect on that song. Remember what Jesus did on the cross for us and thank God that he loved you so much he sent Jesus for your soul. After that, Pastor Dave will come up and lead us all in communion. It is finished.